Welcome back to World Beat. I am George Collins. Uh, just as a refresher, if you're just pulling up a chair, we are here with Dr. Nancy Anderson, MD, MPH, retired associate professor in the Department of Midwifery at Bastyr University. Uh, if you haven't checked out the last two segments yet, I'd give them a run before you uh, pull up the one for this one here. But we've been talking about um, a lot of the healthcare issues in the United States. Um, Certainly there are, I mean, we could, we could probably be here for five hours at least (laughs) on really unpacking that, but COVID has really become a global pandemic. I mean, it became that a long time ago, but that that's particularly relevant that I found, um, especially on this vaccine question, because one of the big issues that came up, um, this was, uh, kind of towards the beginning of the year when the rollout was happening, were all these patent protections on the brands like Pfizer and Moderna that were preventing the rollout in um, countries outside of North America and Europe in particular. Um, and I mean, we've even had reporting in places like India where there are whole factories that are set up ready to go at the first bell and crank out all these vaccines and they couldn't do it because they didn't have the clearance to do so yet. And so while we talk about the systems that promote health inequity in the United States, um, I think there's also a larger global structure in the world at large that separates health outcomes um, between, uh, I I never know how to approach this paradigm, like, uh, you know, what they used to call the third world, but I think that's an old, like, cold word term at this point, you know, what what we might call economically rich and, um, or unequal uh, countries, um, because I often find that third world doesn't mean poor country. It often just means unequal country in a lot of ways. You, know, you have done work in uh, Mozambique, as we talked about in the intro. Um, and if I recall correctly, you have experience in some other nations as well. But when when did you get to Mozambique? What what was the state of the country at that time? And uh, I mean, really, what what was your objective? What did you go there to do? Well, I had I was finishing my degree in public health. And uh, one of my professors, Dr. Stephen Gloyd, had worked in Mozambique and had actually um, gotten some funding to set up a kind of a, an exchange program um, with Mozambique and was recruiting, was looking for a physician to, to work uh, in this project that would be based um, in a small town. So what was the situation in Mozambique? Mozambique gained its independence approximately in 1976 from Portugal. And what happened was uh, relatively shortly thereafter, there was significant recruitment of a whole uh, rebel force to, in different ways and from different kinds of recruiters at different times to really fight the newly independent government. I mean, initially it was Zimbabwe before Zimbabwe was independent and then it became South Africa at a time when South Africa was still an apartheid state. When I went to Mozambique, it was in the middle of a war, a war that there's been sort of a lot of revision of why it happened. 
but I'm comfortable saying that it was a war that was really catalyzed and financed outside the country um, by South Africa, by Zimbabwe before independence. And the, the fear that these countries had of Mozambique was, they said, a fear of socialism or communism. But the truth is that the utter fear of South Africa was that Mozambique was a country next door to it that was aiming and working on equity, on being a multiracial, equity-driven society. And that was terrifying to South Africa. Um, so when I went there, there was a rebel force known as RENAMO that um, was essentially engaging in a disorganized but widespread uh, form of rebellion against the government that resulted more than anything in heavy civilian casualties, in kidnappings, in murders, uh, in violence against women and children. Um, the particular part of Mozambique where I was recruited to work was very close, in fact, to the Zimbabwean border. So it, it wasn't a particularly unsafe place in and of itself. But around, surrounding the area where I lived, there was a lot of insecurity. And so there were lots of populations that were internally dislocated and on the move. And why did I go? I went because I really thought it was a very practical way of doing anti-apartheid work. Um, and I was a doctor. I had a degree in public health. I was hired by the Mozambican government to work within the hierarchy. And I really wanted to help. And I, I thought this is a practical thing I can do as anti-apartheid work. So that's why I went and, you know, in terms of my own life, it was a good time for me to go because um, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. And I thought, I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this again. So there was sort of a combination of factors. And then being someone of African descent, it was really um, appealing to me to work in Africa. So it was that sort of combined reason that got me going. And were you, um, were you using your, your pediatric training primarily? Well, I am a pediatrician by training, but I was, my first year there, I was the district medical officer. So most of the work was maternal child health work. There was a kind of a cottage hospital where I was stationed, but I really um, spent a lot of time taking care of everybody. Um, I was the only physician in the district, but there were a lot, well, there were a number of other trained health personnel. There were nurses, um, there were uh, dental agents, there were um, people who were sort of paraprofessionals who could help. Um, so it wasn't like I was all by myself, but um, my expertise was in pediatrics. I would say that, um, you know, it just, you, when you, make a move like that, where you're essentially leaving the part of the world that is really on the margins of reality and going to the center of the world in terms of the global majority and the challenges that people face every day, 
it is a big uphill learning curve. I didn't have the drugs that I had here. I didn't have the technology that I had here. I mean, I, I had to read books about when there is no doctor and what you do when you don't have a lot of things. What's the best you can do to help somebody? So it was a huge learning curve. Um, and I also had to learn to trust colleagues that didn't have anywhere near my amount of formal education, but who really um, had experience that I didn't. There were, you know, what were the common diseases of children? Malnutrition. I had never really seen malnutrition in the, not really, in the United States. Malaria. I'd never seen anybody who had malaria in the United States. Those were the two common diseases that I saw all the time. So there was lots of learning. And then it was also interesting to um, work in a country that was newly independent. That also had lots of challenges um, because a lot of the Mozambique tried really hard to do things like improve the status of women. So there was sort of a, a state structured women's organization that went all the way down to the local level. Nonetheless, women had really hard lives and um, had to struggle a lot um, to get everything done that they needed to do to take care of children, to take care of their homes, um, to cope sometimes with violence against them. Um, so th there were many, many things I learned. I think I could summarize a few. Number one, good intention is not enough. I mean, I had certainly read about post-colonial life and I theoretically understood that Mozambique, like lots of the rest of the world, is still emerging from the sort of yoke or the, the, the ditch of colonialism. And what does it mean to then develop your own sense of national identity that's post-colonial? How do you avoid becoming re-yoked to the same system that, that held you back in the past? What does it mean if you take big loans because you have to um, from big international um, structures? What does it mean when you have to essentially clamp down on the very infrastructures, the health infrastructures that you knew were important because you can't afford it anymore? All of that was going on. What does it mean to avoid or not avoid corruption? So good intention is not enough. You really have to spend a lot of time saying nothing with your eyes open and just looking around and trying to absorb what you're learning. The second thing I think is that you have to, I referred to the fact that many countries are just emerging or still emerging from colonialism you have to decolonize your mind. I mean, it, it was the writer Ngugiwa Thiongo who used that expression describing what it was like to be in a post-colonial society. And he was talking a lot about literature and language, but it's true in many ways. You have to rethink a lot of things that you took for granted. And it's a continuous process. And then the third thing is just to whatever knowledge you gain from it, whatever humility you get, to bring it back to your own country and recognize that there are people in your own country who are surviving in the same way, who themselves 
are trying to decolonize themselves and develop their own sense of health and develop their own understanding of what it means for them to be healthy. Whole communities, whole states, whole areas, whole ethnicities who are really trying to center health on what they think is important. And it's a long struggle. Well, it's, um, it's, it's very timely. I've just finished uh, the book, um, The Challenge for Africa by uh, Wangari Maathai, the late environmental oh, yes. um, organizer. Yes. And w- one of the things that she speaks to in there is that for, for many of the problems facing uh, a number of African countries today, um, which as cliche as some of them might sound, we have to remember are very real. It's like, yes, there is malnutrition. There is corruption. Like these aren't just tropes. They might be incomplete most of the time, but they are, they are real factors, but she really emphasizes the need for um, African led solutions to African problems. Mm -hmm. And this, yes. And what you've just said reminds me of this in that, you know, when it comes to, um, you know, delinking from a lot of these old uh, colonial structures, that well, well, in the case of Kenya, she uses the example of when the parliament was forming um, under under Jomo Kenyatta, and the debate was: Do we have an American style Congress, a British parliamentarian system, or a German parliamentarian right. system? Right. She says, "So wait, where where's the discussion of you know? Obviously, you can't go back to a pre-colonial society, but there were some kind of structures in place. Why are we not throwing those into the mix?" Um, and she speaks about that mostly in, in civic and in political terms in this book. But from some other scholarship I've read about uh, healthcare in particular, um, there's also the work uh, by um, Mary Howard and Ann Millard, uh, Hunger and Shame, about, about the New mm-hmm. Room Project. Um, and I can't recall yeah. what yes. country that was in, but um, somewhere in the Kilimanjaro area. Yeah. I think it might have been Tanzania. That, that would make sense. I know there's a lot of... Um, a lot of work that uh, goes on down there, but, but she talks about how one of the, in, in doing a post game of that project, one of the big failures they ran into was that they would do things like, Hey, take all the women out of this community, give them a bunch of education, then just ship them back. And then the men show up like, what the hell happened? Y'all were gone for a little bit. And now suddenly you just come out of nowhere. Um, I I mean, to what extent based on your experience? um, I mean, I mean, was that, I guess I should say, um, how, how much were, when we do set things like these these development goals from the UN and the, and the bank, I mean, how, how much is that really coming into the picture? And what, I mean, in what ways, in, in the case of healthcare, like what, what are ways to encourage African solutions to African problems? Well, you know, I mean, I think, I don't know all of the UN. I know... Um, I know some about the United Nations Population Fund, the the UNFPA, and I know that they have worked really hard to develop community-centered responses to uh, the needs of women and children, all childbearing people and children, to the extent that solutions are centered and catalyzed by and carried out by the communities that are hoped to be served, um, it's just much more likely that it's going to work. 
I mean, you pick something like reproductive health, where there are so many cultural factors involved in understanding pregnancy and post-pregnancy and what's healthy and what's not. And you, if you don't incorporate and center all of your undertakings on what the cultures you are you are aiming to help what they think is important, you're, you're lost. It's just never going to work. You know, again, I don't know all of the United Nations. All I can say is that I, I know a little bit about the UNFPA um, because I went to the conference in Nairobi a couple of years ago and they were really working hard to make sure that youth were represented, which is huge all genders were represented, that people from a variety of cultures, countries, understandings of of necessity for reproductive health were represented. I mean, I think that kind of um, undertaking has a chance to work. If that doesn't happen, I just think there's, uh, there's no chance. I think people on the community level here say nothing about us without us. And I think that's true everywhere. I mean, and, and then again, there are systemic issues in terms of who has money in the world. I mean, what are the financial structures um, that make a difference? What does the World Bank do? What does the IMF do? What kind of power do these kinds of institutions hold over the majority of the world? that really has to be rethought. And, you know, again, we can see that COVID exposes some of this because if people in most of the world can't get vaccine because of patents or whatever, I mean, it really, for all of us, we're not, this is, this is gonna go on forever. Everyone has to have access to immunization and has to feel okay about getting it. If that doesn't happen, then we're just gonna be stuck in this limbo uh, long-term. I mean, the case about India is particularly horrifying because of course, India as a country is famous for being a vaccine manufacturer. So the fact that they had trouble getting vaccine with you know, getting access to vaccine is just, you know, it's an embarrassment. And look, look what ended up happening. I mean, er, earlier this year, not not even just a few months ago. Um, I mean, I mean, COVID was just shredding through India. Yes. Um, I yes. mean, it, it was it was absolutely getting annihilated out there. When pretty early on in the pandemic, India was actually posting pretty good stats. Um, right. Even when compared to countries of similar economic status, um, which right. I, I guess leads into my next question that. You know, when we talk about global health inequality um, for whether it's sub-Saharan Africa or, um, you know, places in South America, wh- wherever it might be, I mean, throw a dart on the map. It would be very easy for folks in the U.S. to say, OK, but so what? Like what what relevance does under five mortality rate have in a place like Mozambique? Right. Or something like that. It's, it's an ocean. It's a hemisphere away. But um, even just setting aside something as obvious as COVID, which obviously has a global impact what why why is it crucial just on a quote-unquote normal day in the neighborhood why is it important to actually promote 
health equity in in the world and beyond just what you've talked about the the kind of intentional thing of um you know some some international group with like a bunch of different acronyms getting together and saying we're committing to this by 2015 and then we kick the can down the road to 2022 but like why why is why why are these stats why are why are these important i guess is the is the core question there i mean if the majority of the world is denied health we will not remain healthy because the majority of the world will be unable to be educated, to live long lives, to have well-being, to have stable societies. And that instability is catching. It's as catching as COVID. That kind of misery extends from one place to another. You could think of it symbolically, it's all an infectious disease. So even if I don't say we should care about the world, the fact of the matter is that what we know is that populations move under miserable conditions when they do not have security or the right to food or the right to income. They don't stay where they are, never. They move from place to place. What do we want from our world depends on the entire world gaining a sense of stability and health. Sort of a minor example of what a virus is to move from place to place. In the same way, I would say that what happens in terms of the presence of insecurity and poverty is it doesn't ever stay in one place. It always affects everywhere. And that's why. Now, I will say the United States is a particularly terrible example of a place where people actually believe that they can just be healthy by themselves in their families and that even what affects the person around the corner doesn't affect them. It has something to do with the ideology of white settlement in the United States. Even in other white parts of the world, even in Canada, which is after all a very close neighbor, there's just a much greater sense of community responsibility than we have here. I mean, they have a whole different kind of healthcare system and it has its own problems, but there's a recognition that people are connected to each other. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not, putting any country up in lights. I'm just saying that I think uh, the United States in particular is a place where community connection can never be taken for granted. Yeah, no doubt. Um, and that's actually a great segue into our final segment um, where want to look ahead. Obviously, there are a lot of implications with uh, in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic and uh, look forward to hearing your thoughts on them. This is uh, World Beat. We'll be right back. 